Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is the brilliant Liz Gilbert, who is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's campaign, and she has worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, it's great to see you again and welcome back. Thanks, Ron. Thank you for having me. Also returning to the roundup is the always highly anticipated Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project, and he also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, what's new? Not a whole lot new, but I'm really anticipating this conversation coming up. That's good stuff to talk about. (laughs) On this week's roundup... The January 6th committee ramps up the pressure on the subpoenas issued to Trump allies, the good and the bad of corporate citizenship, inflation, supply chain struggles, and the politics of the looming holiday crisis. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll discuss the resignation of Las Vegas Raiders head coach John Gruden after the New York Times reported on homophobic and misogynistic emails. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. On Tuesday, Vice Chair of the January 6th Committee, Liz Cheney, said that they will move criminal contempt charges for people who do not comply with the subpoenas issued from the committee. And this came days before Trump's former Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, longtime advisor Steve Bannon, former Acting Secretary of Defense, Cash Patel, and former White House Deputy Chief of Staff, Dan Scavino, were slated to be deposed. According to CNN, Patel and Meadows have been engaging with the committee, but it remains unclear whether or not they'll appear for their depositions. Steve Bannon has already told the committee he won't comply, citing executive privilege. On Wednesday, Bannon's lawyer sent a letter to the committee saying Bannon won't provide testimony or documents until the committee and Trump reach an agreement on executive privilege or a court rules on the matter. That's all according to CNN. Last week, Liz Cheney and committee chairman Benny Thompson issued a statement saying they will, quote, swiftly consider advancing criminal contempt of Congress referral, end quote. If they refuse to testify, the committee can refer the matter to the Justice Department for potential criminal contempt of Congress charges. So how important do you guys think it's going to be for understanding what led to the insurrection and to restoring faith in the rule of law that these depositions happen or for the committee to move to hold Trump's allies in contempt? Mike? Well, I think it's central to uh, certainly the balance of power in Washington, D.C. I think that these uh, hearings, um, especially from new voices that we haven't heard before, are going to be really critical to driving a national narrative uh, on what happened. And also kind of keeping the issue at the forefront of people's minds, right? We're all aware of the short attention span of uh, so many Americans uh, who are going out their daily lives. you know, it, it almost appears as a January 6th insurrection is, you know, disappearing into the rearview mirror here. I think having some of the names that you mentioned, the Steve Bannons, the Mark Meadows, Patal and Scavino, I, I, you know, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's the rogues gallery, right? It's a who's who of people as close to the president as you can get to talk about under oath what exactly they knew and when they knew it. 
So it's, I think it's critically important. I think the, the real challenge for the Democrats in Congress is they're up against a clock, right? We're almost a year out of the midterms. And th- this is the game that's being played here is can these uh, people run out the clock with a year before the midterms and uh, assuming that the Republicans take over the majority and then kill the committee outright and get rid of it and stop kind of the discussion that's going on? Um, I think I think that's that's what we're looking at. That's what's being considered. But I think the narrative itself is actually central to whether or not the Democrats can maintain control of Congress. Yeah, let's come back to that in a minute, Mike, because I want you to reprise the refrigerator hum. But we've spent a lot of time talking, Liz, about the erosion of trust in the DOJ and government agencies during the Trump administration. And now we have a new administration. And if Trump allies refuse to testify and the committee moves for contempt of charges, now they don't get to decide if they, they will be enforced. They have to refer to the DOJ. So how will Merrick Garland and the DOJ have to weigh the political implications of prosecuting former Trump administration officials? Yeah, so the thing that strikes me, Ron, is that the sentence that you just stated for all of us here and all of your listeners is even something to consider, that the DOJ getting involved is now seen as a political act. And I think it is really, um, I don't want to say in thanks to, but due to the Trump administration and the way that they politicized non-political entities of our government that gives folks um, this lack of trust. As Mike was talking, I I was nodding along because the point that voters have such short-term memories is really something that we will witness in real time um, during what is happening with with the committee right now. So the DOJ and FBI have done thousands of investigations and have made hundreds of arrests. They are doing their job. um, But the question is, what will come from that? I think it's one thing to arrest and try the people who are in the building. But what is happening now is really getting to the core of the question of who paid for these folks to be in Washington, who organized and incited these activities. And to to Mike's point, if these folks do not come forward to provide that information, I, of course, fully support the DOJ or, or any part of the government that needs to get involved to make sure we're learning these essential truths. So, Mike, I want to play this clip for both of you of Adam Schiff describing uh, that day. And then I want to talk about the, the, the politics of this and how, how, uh, how Democrats need to play it. There were people uh, breaking down the door. Uh, it wouldn't be long after this that Ashley Babbitt would be shot uh, climbing through the glass uh, to try to break in. Um, and I kind of hung back. I think everyone was reacting differently. And there was a real uh, scrum to try to get out the doors when the Capitol Police were telling us, you need to get out, you need to get out. Um, and uh, and so I was waiting. And uh, I, I, you know, I have to say my first reaction when these Republicans came up to me to say, you can't let them see you, uh, was to be touched that they were concerned about my safety. But my next reaction was to think, you know, if you all hadn't been uh, lying about the election, um, let alone lying about me for four years, I wouldn't need to be worried about my security. None of us would need to be worried about it. And in that sense, what what angered me the most, uh, I think, about that day were these insurrectionists in suits and ties um, who were... Uh, still, even after the bloody insurrection, even after all the shattered glass and and the death uh, of that day, we're back on the House floor trying to overturn the election. 
insurrectionists in suits and ties. And later in that interview on CNN, he he calls McCarthy an insurrectionist in a suit and tie. And I wonder if you know how you how you read how Republicans are ultimately going to play this. He recounts a conversation between he and McCarthy on the floor where McCarthy basically says, "Yeah, well, you know how it goes, Adam." And the the, the flippancy with which the majority leader in the House, the Republican leader, is treating this incident uh, sort of goes to show that they know exactly how short voters' memories are. And so I, I wonder how you how you read that, Mike, and then uh, I want you to talk a little bit about just how important it is that we keep the narrative up, that Democrats keep the narrative of what happened that day up, um, and and the effect that that's going to have on on sort of penetrating the zeitgeist of of um, you know political of the political world uh, going into the midterms. Uh, this kind of fascinates me for a couple of reasons. The first is that you're starting to see some of this, uh, not only this language being used, but it's, it's very clear to me that the tactics that will be used by the Republicans will be eerily similar to what we saw during both impeachment hearings, which is to simply obfuscate you know, the obvious point by point. Um, there doesn't need to be anything cohesive about the strategy. And then just deny, deny, deny in a direct appeal to the base and nothing beyond that and try to work to preserve and protect that. That's going to be what we're going to see during this January 6th committee uh, hearing. Uh, there'll be just kind of a full assault on um, on all of the evidence, which will be uh, plain. I think we're going to hear a lot of things coming from people's mouths directly through audio. I think we're going to hear some uh, phone uh, conversations. We're certainly going to see a text chains with timelines that say exactly what happened. And the Republicans will basically kind of, again, obfuscate and and simply deny, deny, deny. Um, I, look, I, I'm, I guess I'm troubled because it will also probably work the same way that the impeachment hearings work, certainly with the base. What is important here is that Democrats keep up uh, um, the narrative um, uh, uh, front by driving this message as Republican as equals as domestic terrorist equals yeah, insurrectionists <laughs> equals yeah. attack on the U.S. Capitol. That is the Republican Party going into the midterms. It has to be for Democrats. It, it has to be. And I think that I think that it can be done, too, by the way. Let's not let's not forget a lot of us who were kind of, you know, our jaws were dropping for four years saying, when is the Republican line going to break by what's happening with this administration? did see a break after the insurrection. We did see state by state a measurable amount of Republicans literally getting up and leaving in the middle of a pandemic to re-register uh, away from the party, either as Democrats or as independents. Um, that was when we saw some break. I'm not saying it was significant enough to, you know, in, in the wake of a, of, a, of a revolution, a coup attempt, but it, but it did happen. This this does impact when people are reminded that this is what you might be putting in power, they do respond. It's certainly not going to be a majority of the Republican base, but it's enough to tip the balance of power. Of course, we're still a year out of, of, of the election, but we do know that this is salient and we do know that there are going to be many months of direct evidence uh, presented to the American people to to sufficiently drive a political narrative to 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 affect the outcome of the races, and and this is what you've called a, a refrigerator hum before. Well, that's the that's the that's how you combat sort of the short attention span, right? You have to have enough to bleed out, and the good 
I hate to say use the term the good news, but but the news is there is going to be so much evidence, so much rolling out. It's going to be overwhelming. It's going to be direct. I believe it's going to be clear, and I think that it's going to put a lot of members of Congress on the spot and allow the media narrative to be fed for many, many, many months. Uh, the question is going to be, um, can that refrigerator hum kind of last for a year? My strong suspicion is it probably can. Yeah. Liz, does Steve Bannon testify? Yeah. I don't believe so mm. because he's Steve Bannon. Mm. Um, and so to your point about the DOJ and their involvement, my issue with the Democrats um, is, is to Mike's point and, and to yours, Ron, quite honestly, that Democrats need to peddle the message that Republicans equal domestic terrorists, equal capital insurrection, et cetera, is that the Republicans will take over what I believe is a louder megaphone, that the Democrats are the party who are politicizing the Justice Department. Mm. And I think we will see that when some of these officials do, in fact, refuse to testify. I don't think that Adam Schiff going um, to speak on the morning talk shows and and Liz Cheney saying we take this very seriously. I don't think that this will get Trump's allies to cooperate. They feel they are invincible. That is why they ultimately made it to power and stayed in the White House for four years. And also why you have Donald Trump warning Republican vote warning that Republican voters will not be voting in the midterms if the presidential election fraud of 2020 is not resolved. Like he is still out there saying this bullshit. And so does that megaphone come to us at a louder volume than the Democrats saying, God, look at what the Republicans did Mm -hmm. and what they allowed to have happen. I don't know who has the the louder mouthpiece, but I think it's going to be, um, you know, Mike said the, the refrigerator hum does have the capacity to last for the next year through the midterms. And I agree with that, but did the Democrats have the strategic buy-in to decide that that is going to be a large part of a midterm victory strategy? And I don't know if that leadership is in place to, to make that happen. <sighs> okay, let's talk about corporate citizenship. On Monday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued an executive order banning any entity in the state, including private citizens, from requiring workers or customers to be vaccinated, according to the Washington Post. And this move was at odds with the Biden administration's plans to require all employers with 100 or more workers to adopt vaccine mandates or testing regimes, as well as with private employers in Texas who have already announced mandates. Fort Worth-based American Airlines and Dallas-based Southwest Airlines had already announced their own vaccine mandates when Abbott issued the order and said on Tuesday that they will continue to follow the federal requirements and mandate vaccines. And the business group called the Greater Houston Partnership, which includes ExxonMobil, Chevron, and JPMorgan Chase, released a statement condemning Abbott's order on Tuesday. And uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki accused Abbott of putting politics ahead of public health. So Liz, let's start with you. How should we be thinking about Abbott's mandate and the impact it can have on employers in Texas? Well, I'm actually really excited to have this conversation with the two of you as former um, Republicans, um, if, if I can still call you both that. But really the fact that it is a Republican governor trying to impede on big business 
to me, there's there's this one post, I think it's in the New York Times, and it says, is is the Republican Party the anti-business yeah. party? Yeah, this was and Paul I, Krugman. I, yeah, I, I couldn't believe that because this goes against decades of who the Republican Party is and what the, the party's identity is. And so Jen Psaki, God bless her, and I think she's doing a phenomenal job. This was a perfect one-liner because it is backed up with so much evidence. Vaccine mandates work. The science is there. The data is in. And the fact that Governor Abbott wants to say, I'm going to protect these employees by not allowing this mandate, it is it is so very clearly purely a political act. So I think she's spot on. And I think in large part, it comes to the fact that Donald Trump is still going around the country saying, if you don't do as I say and use my rhetoric, I will find someone to primary you. So we're talking about health threats and health safety or unsafety um, being the brunt of a very bad political joke. And I think it's something that we need to watch very clearly. And I'm proud of both American Airlines and Southwest for saying, no, absolutely not. We're large businesses, massive employers in your state. And what is most important to us is doing what's best for our business. And we're going to continue to do that. Yeah. So Mike, Liz is talking about the Paul Krugman piece in the Times about the Republican Party becoming anti-business. And last week, a CNBC poll of chief financial officers found that 80% of them say they totally support the Biden administration's plan for vaccine mandates. Krugman also pointed out the tension around infrastructure because corporate leaders want a serious investment in infrastructure, but Republicans don't want to see Democrats get a big policy win. And Mm -hmm. he wrote, uh, quote, basically, the GOP is currently engaged in a major campaign of sabotage. Its leaders want to see America do badly because they believe this will redound to their political advantage. And if it hurts their corporate backers along the way, they don't care. So Mm -hmm. this just feels like, you know, uh, having worked in Republican politics for as long as you have and I have, uh, it feels like it feels like Stranger Things upside down. You know, it feels like everything's yeah. upside down. But like, it, but but this is part of a much larger shift, a trend that we've been mm. following. And, um, and and you know, for example, like the Chamber of Commerce is probably you know. It, Irritated would be a very mild word uh, uh, to use here because after funding election re-election efforts for so long, they now are sort of you know being betrayed by by the party that they've basically propped up for mm-hmm. so long. So, how are you thinking about this? What's going to be the impact if Republicans keep trying to stand in the way of their you know erstwhile corporate um, friends? Look, I'm really. Um glad that Liz made this point because, and we, we talked about this a little bit, I think on the podcast, uh, during the, the campaign, the last, uh, during the last year, as the Republican party devolves into a populist party, um, it, the institutions that it supports are, are by definition going to change. And, and corporate America uh, really no longer has an ally in the Republican Party. The Republican Party is not a pro-business party anymore. Let me say that again just so that can, people can kind of take a deep breath, have a sip of coffee, and soak that in. The Republican Party is not a pro-business party anymore. You can argue it's a pro-taxpayer party. It's a pro-populist party. And populism doesn't, doesn't adjudicate between it, the, the interests that it serves. This is, again, why it was so significant that the Chamber of Commerce 
uh, said explicitly that they were going to be um, supporting Democrats for the first time um, as a strategic objective um, in the 2020 elections. Um, in the break from the Republican Party. It's also why the chamber has been disinvited from strategy sessions with Republican leadership on how they're going to start driving the narrative on the um, Biden spending plan. So this break is is very real. It is an extremely significant uh, shift. And and to the Republican leadership, I think they're realizing – that the business community is not not fucking around. They're, yeah. they're they're not they're not they're they're these are not enemies you want to have. Um, but what what they have replaced the funding mechanism from large corporations with is this small donor program. Yes, which makes them more responsive. They being the Republicans, much more responsive to grassroots activists, many of which are giving five, ten, fifteen, fifty bucks a month. As opposed to trying to go get a five six figure contribution yeah. uh, from from corporate America, yeah. and so the, the 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 nature of the constituencies that they're serving, they being again the Republicans has changed, and this puts corporate America in a very dicey you know place. So so uh, sorry again uh, you, the traditional Mike Madrid long wind up <laughs> to, to to where this is going with corporate American corporate responsibility. Another one of the major problems that corporate America has is while its customer base tends to be in bluer states where the markets are bigger, many of them have moved their headquarters to red states because of business-friendly climates for tax advantages in large part. So what you have is this competing interest of do I start responding politically to my customer base if it's not consistent with where my employee base is headquartered at, right? So you saw companies like Apple responding to some of the abortion legislation in Texas by saying, you know, we're going to help our employees resolve uh, their personal issues around the situation. A week later, you have Tesla uh, and Elon Musk announcing they're moving their headquarters from California to Texas, Right, and so these companies are are going to start making political decisions. Not unlike athletes are have you know we're all every decision we make has now been politicized, and corporate America is going to find that it's no different. Um, and so, so watching, and again, we've talked about this uh, at length because I think it's going to be very decisive on whether or not we have a functioning, thriving democracy in the next five, six, eight years is really going to be largely reliant on, of all things corporations, how corporations respond to the current political climate. Look, authoritarian regimes are not really good for, for, for competitive businesses. Neither is chaos, right? What you really need is you need to have some sort of consistency and stability in the marketplace in order to thrive as a business. So this disruption that Congress is creating is not healthy for business. It's not good for business. And corporate America, I think, is going to respond. They're going to have to. Liz and I are just both smiling and nodding and listening to you because like, first of all, it's so right, but I want to, I have a couple of additional thoughts, which is yes, they are now far more responsive to the, uh, to the grassroots donor base and the shifting sentiment of the grassroots donor base than they are to, uh, than they are to their, you know, traditional large dollar corporate donors. But even when the sentiments of that grassroots donor base are based on absolute falsities, right? It doesn't matter. Even if, if they are, if they're, uh, you know, if, if the, if the donor base believes, uh, that the election was stolen, well, so be it, right. Then, then, then that's what we believe. That's what we're going to talk about. So, uh, 
so for, for, you know, this, this is the danger of sort of being responsive to a mob, right? Um, I mean, like yes. among other reasons, like this is right. But here's what I really want to know, Liz. Uh, um, okay. The Republican party is no longer the, the party of business. Take another sip of water. That's right. What, that's, the, that's what, that's what Mike right. tells me. The Republican party is no longer the party of business. Okay. Well, the democratic party isn't really either. Right. Is this a strategic opportunity for Democrats? And if so, how? If not, why not? Especially as we see that this major infrastructure package and the $3.5 trillion spending bill is being proposed, the funding source is largely corporate tax increases. So how do you see Democrats? Is there an opportunity here, um, first of all? And and if not, how do you see um, Democrats playing this? Yeah, so I don't know if I'm your resident um, Democrat naysayer who also is a Democrat, um, but when you ask the question of, is this a strategic opportunity um, and should the Democrats be focusing together to make a strategic play to position the party to be the pro-business party, the answer is undoubtedly yes. Uh, There's so many reasons why that is the case. I know we've talked about it on the podcast before, Ron, but I will bring it up again. The statement of a corporation that was put out by the Business Roundtable just a couple years ago. Tell everybody what the Business Roundtable is, in case they don't know, because that's sort of a Beltway Insider piece of trivia. Yeah, so the Business Roundtable is an association for CEOs from the top um, companies in our country, and they work to really promote a thriving U.S. economy um, through sound public policy. Cool. So so basically, um, top corporations around the country come together to talk about what it means to be a top corporation in the country, what your responsibilities should be and must be, where the climate is going and what the priorities um, what the priorities must be. And so a couple years ago, they came out saying it's not just about caring for your shareholders, but you need to look at stakeholders at large to figure out how you are treating your employees, the environment, your communities. I mean, these are these are top fortune companies who are saying it's no longer just about the bottom line as the focus, but we need to focus on a much broader scope to enhance any future uh, progress with our bottom line. And the way to do that is by investing back in this people infrastructure, which we're learning Mm. so much about with what's going on with the infrastructure package in DC right now. And so what we've talked about previously is how corporations are becoming as equally important as a lot of these politicians, if not far more so. So to Mike's point about watching the way many of these companies sway and do not sway, it's really permeating down to the grassroots level, I believe, in a way in a way that it hasn't before. Back to the Democrats. With the positioning of the Republican Party no longer being the pro-business party, I would hope that any Democratic leader and or strategist would be saying, what do we do in this moment to make sure that in the one year's time between now and probably the most important midterm election of our lifetime, it will determine the future of legislation for many, many decades Mm -hmm. to come, I believe. What are we doing within this one year to capitalize on this one stream of a communication strategy? And and I know I said this already in in today's recording, but 
I don't know who is at the leadership level shepherding those decisions and those strategies through. And so to your question, and I think there were a few more in there, but the one that stuck out to me most is, is there an opportunity yeah. for the Democrats right now? And I would say, hell yeah, yeah, there, there absolutely is. And I hope as a Democrat, we see, we see them not, not miss this very important opportunity. Yeah. Mike, speaking of that opportunity, here's a sort of a curveball, but I, I, I want to know what you think about how this could potentially play at the state legislative level, because that's where Democrats need to make gains so badly. I mean, yes, okay, the House is in the House majority is in jeopardy. They're probably going to lose it because of redistricting and a couple of other reasons, right? But that's sort of already it's all it's kind of priced in at this point. Uh, yeah. But state legislative battles, considering the influence, the massive amount of influence that corporations in inside states have. How do you think this could play to the Democrats' advantage? Are there new alliances that are sort of out of their wheelhouse that they need to form here? Um, you see where I'm going? Yeah, I do. I, I think, unfortunately, it's going to take a while to manifest itself. Like I said, is, is these institutions that create party structures, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen in one, one fell swoop. I actually, not, to, not a shameless plug here, but I wrote an op-ed for the Sacramento Bee on just this topic uh, yesterday. On, on the collapse of institutions. So on the right, your institutions tend to look like corporations and churches, the military, for example. On the left, they tend to look like government, the media, um, university systems. Um, all of these, all the confidence in all of these institutions are breaking down. But the corporation, I think, has a unique role because it, it's, it's, it's a little bit more flexible and malleable than these other social institutions. Unfortunately, they are, they tend to be state by state interests that have those relationships with legislatures, and these are very deep and long lasting. So, until uh, there's an ideological change, like literally in, in, in imprinted in the DNA of the party, saying we are either against corporations, or you start to see legislators and mass start to attack corporations. Incidentally, I think this is the real dilemma that the, that the Democratic Party has here is the more that, and I think Liz is right, strategically, it should be looking to fill that vacuum. That's the way a normal two-party system works is when one party gets so extreme and vacates that place on the battlefield, the other party swoops into the center and occupies it and starts to get win a majority. The challenge for the Democratic Party is the rise of kind of its anti-corporate left wing is is pretty, you know, is a, is a very, not just- They're very loud. It's very loud, but it's also very, it's growing, Right, it's not it's not a dying or, or or neutral wing of the party. It's it's getting louder uh, and stronger, and more influential. So I, I think there's a real dilemma again, not just for for corporations, although I think it's a fascinating study. It's really for what where, where institutions are going to be viewed politically going forward. Um, so I don't think at this point in time there's going to be as much opportunity for Democrats state by state as we will see in you know the five, six, eight, ten year range. I don't know that there's going to be enough influence to be had uh, in the midterms, unfortunately. Okay. On the flip side of this, Reuters reported last week that Donald Trump's favorite far-right conspiracy theory network, One American News, has flourished in part because of support from AT&T. 
In court documents, OAN founder and chief executive Robert Herring Sr. testified that he launched OAN in 2013 after AT&T executives told him they wanted another conservative news network. Since then, AT&T has been a source of tens of millions of dollars for OAN's revenue. 90% of OAN's revenue comes from a contract with AT&T-owned television platforms, including DirecTV. And also, according to Reuters, Herring testified that he was offered $250 million for OAN in 2019, but OAN's accountant said that without the DirecTV deal, the network's value would be zero. So how should we be thinking about AT&T's deals with OAN? What should cable providers factor when they make decisions about which networks to pay for and provide to their consumers? And how should consumers be thinking about the way they engage with corporate brands? Mike? Liz? (laughs) Who wants to take that one? Yeah, I'm I'm happy. Yeah, go first. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to to start. Um, so what I would say is this one this one feels a little complicated for a couple of reasons. When I look back to the the start of these conversations and the year is 2013 when these OAN folks were um, at that time approached by AT&T, I think we had a little bit of a different political landscape. It was um you know second term Obama but before the 2014 it, insanely consequential midterms. Um, And not to say that we hadn't already seen the birth of the Tea Party, but I feel like the climate was ever so slightly different. So when I read in the testimony that AT&T made this approach because they were looking for not a foil to Fox News, but another network to be created. So Fox News was not the only voice. I actually want to applaud that conversation. I too was hoping that Fox News would not be the only voice. I do not believe, and maybe this you know, is a little Pollyannish, but I do not believe at the time AT&T was thinking, I, we want something far more conservative than Fox News. I think they were thinking, how do we have a diversity of opinions on mm. one side of the aisle when the other side is able to provide their diversity of opinions from moderate Democrats to far more progressive Democrats. So I do, and again, very Pollyannish perhaps, but maybe it was coming from a good place of let's diversify conservative opinions that that we're putting online. I then believe that in these last few years in particular, and watching the way that misinformation and fake news has destroyed many parts of the fabric of mm-hmm. our country, I do believe that AT&T has the responsibility to take action on that. And through my work with different, the past three conventions that I've worked on, I feel that I have had the privilege of meeting um, many folks in AT&T leadership. And I can say, at least from a, a nominal personal experience, I don't think they are sitting around a boardroom saying, how do we destroy America today so we can make more money? I I don't see it, but I also know that money controls everything. And so their very slow reaction to take action to me is alarming. But when you look back to the genesis of their support, I do believe that it was coming from a place of let's diversify opinions on the other side of the aisle. Mike, I don't know if you would agree with that. I think you're right. There was a market opportunity, right? Fox has gotten so big and as being the kind of, they were monopolizing the American right. Right. And I mean, in the same way that Roger Ailes I, and, and, you know, Murdoch identified an opportunity 25, 30 years ago and established Fox News and started to segment the media. 
I think AT&T probably saw that same opportunity and said, you know, if we just get 10, 15% of the market share of Fox, we can we can monetize this and make a, a significant revenue stream. That's what they were initially looking for. Now, I think you're right. I think this got out of control. Um, but they do, they do, again, also to your point, they have a they have a responsibility to dial this back in, right? They've got to reel this, they've got to reel this in. And I think public pressure. Um, is, is going to be central to making sure that that happens. Is this is not acceptable for a corporation and a good corporate citizen to be funding um, misinformation, to be funding insurrectionist movements, to be to be trafficking in lies. Um, that that is something that we as an American people should be saying this is not this is not acceptable. No matter how much money you're making off of it. Yeah, I mean, but to to date that I have seen, their corporate communication strategy seems to be to deny. To de- and to be on the defensive, they're you know they're they're digging in their heels and they're saying it's not true and you know there's just there's only so far that can take you. It just a, it's a bad look for them. I think it's a really bad look. I also think that AT and T is uh, suffering um, from other market competitors. The number one thing driving their stock price down is com- competition between cable companies and delivery systems. Mm. So it's become not just a revenue stream; it's become a piece of real estate that they need to hold on to in order to be competitive as their stock market valuation is tumbling. They just hit a 10-year low yeah. last week. Uh, they're, they're in trouble. They, 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 yep. they need the market share. As, they need eyeballs. Even if they might be authoritarian, fascist, anti-government eyeballs, they need, yeah. they need to count those for the bottom line. And again, that, they will do that as yeah. long as it is uh, socially acceptable. Now that, it, it, now that you know, we've all seen and looked under, under the, the tent here, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to be pressuring the AT&Ts of the world to say this is not uh, acceptable for for a corporate citizen to be to be undermining the fabric of our society and unraveling the the basic elements of American democracy and vote with your patronage frankly. I mean, look, you guys, I've been, I have been uh, an AT&T wireless customer for probably, (laughs) I don't know, 15 years. I'm switching to Verizon. Mm -hmm. Not, not, and, and not just because of this, to be perfectly candid, I've had lots of issues with AT&T, but this was just like, okay, cherry on top. I'm done. They made it very easy. Made it very, very easy. Yep. Um, uh, and you know, and, and that is Mike, you know, we've talked about this, but that's sort of an, the new paradigm of consumerism in America, right? There's this increased uh, sensitivity to um, the 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 whether or not we believe the brands and the corporations we engage with are responsible actors uh, and and participants in democracy, right? In the very thing that allows all of this to proliferate, to flourish, right? Whether or not. Um, whether or not they're actually, you know, on the side of, of free, open, pluralistic societies and democratic governance. Well, let me take it a step further. I think it's going to be the future of politics. Is we know that Congress and the parties are basically these, you know, calcified, immovable objects, right? Does anybody really believe that calling your le- your congressman makes a difference on on anything? Well, no, it doesn't. But can you have as much or greater sway by changing your purchasing decisions? or being engaged in high-profile public efforts to call out companies that are doing bad things. Uh, and when you start to move those, you start to have not just a social impact, but you're going to have it a political impact. And I believe that we are, again, beginning a, a new phase of civic engagement that is going to be pushing corporations 
and their with their heft and their weight as more movable objects to force government decisions in one direction or the other. And I think that that's probably the uh, a, a very big trend that we're going to see um, politically in the next decade. All right, let's talk about supply chains uh, because we are all so we, because we all know so much about supply chains. Um, well, full disclaimer: I am not a logistician. I hope that's the right word uh, that, that 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 to be used here. The and neither neither are either of you. But we're going to talk about the politics of this anyway because it's important. So. The White House is scrambling to address the congested supply chain. Congested is a is a mild word here. As we head toward the holiday season, we're about ten weeks away from Christmas, uh, but there have been breakdowns across multiple links in supply chains. Eighty five percent of the world's toys are made in China. A COVID outbreak at a port in Shenzhen caused traffic to come to a halt for several days. Ships and shipping containers were rerouted. Factories had to find warehouses to store finished goods and scramble to get goods out to the rest of the world. Toys in particular are at high risk this year. Uh, Roughly half of all retail toy sales come in the weeks before Christmas, according to the Wall Street Journal. And if the toys don't get on the shelves in the next few weeks, it could wreak havoc on the toy industry. The president and chief executive of the Toy Association says he expects the supply chain issues to last well into next year. Mike, are you smiling because there's such a thing as the Toy Association? I, I had a lot going through my mind. <laughs> yeah. This ahead, week, sorry. the White House moved to keep the Port of Los Angeles uh, uh, open 24 7 joining the port of Long Beach, which adopted the 24-7 schedule three weeks ago. FedEx, UPS, Walmart, Samsung, Target, and Home Depot are all also increasing their efforts to transport shipping containers, and labor unions are committing to provide the necessary workers. Uh, Biden administration officials acknowledged that these steps alone will not be able to clear the backlog and hope that additional private sector companies will join in the effort. So this is not a rosy picture even with you know the efforts that are being made, there is not a political solution to this. This is this is largely you know um, a product of of supply and demand, um, and the massive increase in demand uh, is is sort of boosted by the um, by the stimulus package, all the stimulus money that is coursing through the economy. And so, you know, places are reopening, Americans are going shopping. They expect their one click to arrive on their doorstep within hours or days. That's not going to happen. And uh, and not only is this like sort of just in time for the biggest retail season of the year, but it's also promising to uh, persist all the way through uh, through next year into the midterms and then following them into 2023. So I want to talk about the politics of this because, um, you know, like let's talk about the impact of a disappointing holiday season right? Having on the midterms next year. It is, it's one thing to say, well, you know, for the, for, for Biden and for Democrats to say, well, we didn't get this infrastructure package done and we didn't get the spending bill done, but it's a completely different thing for people to, uh, have, you know, a terrible holiday season. Right. Um, and Biden's most likely going to bear the blunt, bear the, bear the brunt of this. Um, he's going to get blamed if people aren't able to buy presents for their kids. So, how should we expect the American people to experience this, to remember this when they're going to uh, the ballot box next year? Liz? Okay. So something that I read this morning was not about the toy industry, though I 
am appreciative that you are bringing this issue to your amazing listeners in a way that affects people at home, right? Everybody knows a child. And so to bring it to the perspective of what is happening to children's toys around holiday time really is, I think, a very savvy and smart move that I am hopeful that the political parties vying for ownership of many state houses and federal chambers will start thinking about this issue in that way. So the thing that I had read this morning is that children's shoes are up 11.9%, which sets a record high since the 1950s. And when you bring it back to, so like understanding supply and demand, supply chain issues, all of these things, that's really super high level. And I'm not just speaking from my own personal experience, (laughs) trying to understand what is going on. But when you bring it back to what is happening to me at home because of what is going on with this larger issue, that, and I regret to say this, but to Mike's point earlier, every decision is political. That's going to make you think, well, whose fault is this? That I need to get shoes for my kid, for the new season, for the new school year, whatever it may be, and look at what is going on. I am very curious to see if folks bring it all the way back to the start of COVID and Mm. try and pinpoint these issues on that. So many articles are saying this issue stems from the closing of factories, which was required at the beginning of the pandemic because no one was putting safety precautions in place. We were a nation and frankly, a world highly unprepared for the pandemic. And so the question is, if COVID had been handled differently from the outset, would you have issues putting toys in your children's stocking. And so I wonder if there's a strategist out there, and I know I have brought this up a couple of times during this recording, but is there a strategist out there who is thinking about these very large looming issues in terms of how they are going to communicate it back to voters? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to see if Democrats try and pin it on Trump by saying if he had handled COVID and we didn't have to come in and spend these you know, this first year in office and then some reworking so many issues that he created for us by simply just ignoring the pandemic. If he had enforced a mask mandate, would we be in this place right now? So will Democrats go down that path as they talk about these issues? Or will Republicans say, look, we have these issues because Democrats are in charge of the White House, the Senate and the House. And so this shows you that Democrats don't care about your children's shoes and toys and they didn't prioritize this and they didn't. They're so busy fighting about all these other issues that they didn't want you to have a good Christmas. So if I was a strategist on either side, I would go to like those extremes. And I'm very curious to see if if people do that. Mike, there are some heart wrenching ads that could be, uh, that could be made out of this, but you know, going into look, we're a year out from the midterms, right? So, uh, there's a long time between now and then this could be forgotten by then. I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm curious to think, you know, hear what you think about whether this has the staying power. If it, let's say, let's assume it's completely disastrous and, and, you know, this is for many people, one of the worst, you know, holiday seasons on record. Um, uh, does that does that end up carrying through to the midterms? Um, is it is it possible for Democrats to blame Trump for that? Is it possible for Republicans to blame Biden for that? Um, how much do people care? But then there's also this short term question about whether it provides an opportunity for Democrats to make a much stronger push on infrastructure. 
So let me uh, speak as a as as a political consultant here and um, say that you know whenever we're doing a race where you're talking about an incumbent's um, work, especially during a re-election effort, um, an executive role is very unique in the minds of voters. And what they're really asking is really kind of simple: is are the lights on and are the trains running on time? In other words, how disruptive is my life with what this politician is doing? Um, and it's a pretty threshold question. As long as the basics are being performed, most most uh, incumbents are reelected. It's a pretty overwhelming number, actually. Um, the problem comes when the basics aren't being done, and it doesn't matter whose fault it is. They need somebody to blame, and 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 we call that the mood of the electorate. How are how are voters feeling? Do they feel that the state, the country, their own city is heading in the right direction or in the wrong track? And we literally ask that question at the beginning of polls. Do you feel like the country's headed in the right direction, or is it on the wrong track? And when the wrong track number starts to pass the right direction number, you got an incumbent who's in trouble, and you have a party that's in trouble. Um, when you can't get, it's not just toys for Christmas, when it's, you can't get medications, when you can't get toilet paper, when you can't get kind of basic uh, um, you know, products, because we are so diapers. reliant on- I mean, well, diapers. Yeah, I mean, there's a diapers, real risk yeah. of diapers not being available. <laughs> I mean, that's not a that's not a pretty scene, right? No, it's, it's, it's not, not a pretty it's not, scene. It's not a place where you want voters at, <laughs> right? It's not where I want my voters at. Liz is dying. Election, right? Yeah, the two of you talking Sorry. about the diaper shortage is giving me all sorts of energy. Thank you. God, it's it's a very scary thing. Yeah, very real thing. Yeah. So so you don't want your voters in that situation heading to the voting booth. Because they will remember that shit. That that they will remember. Well done, Ron. That they will they will remember that shit. Um, uh, Having what was I talking about? Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Go ahead, Mike. It's when voters, folks. This is what you came for. Yeah. (laughs) It's when voters view that there's a competency problem that the basics of what government should be providing are not being provided, that's when they get a little ornery. That's when they go to say, okay, it's time to make a change. And that's when the party in power could suffer very significant defeats. (sighs) Okay. Now that we're up to speed (laughs) on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you're watching. Liz, what do you got for us? Yeah, so I know we've alluded to the upcoming midterm elections Mm -hmm. quite a bit um, since we're now about a year away. Um, But in two weeks, we have some very important elections. New Jersey and Virginia are the only states that have elections in off-cycle years. So the first year after a new president is reelected, and they are often seen very critically as bellwethers for what will happen in the midterms. There is only one individual in the last 60 some odd years in the state of Virginia, who has been able to win the governor's race while his same party held the White House. So the only time that a governor of the same party mimicked the party that was in power in the White House in the last 60 years in Virginia, and that was Terry McAuliffe in 2013. Mm. Terry McAuliffe right now is only up in the polls by about two points, and Joe Biden won that state handily by double digits. 
And so I think what we are seeing in very real time is the national backlash on local and state politics. And so what I'm following very closely is what is happening in Virginia, because that is going to give us such a very clear path forward, I believe, on what we need to work on and pay attention to with being only one one year out from the midterm. So two weeks from Tuesday, New Jersey and Virginia. Mike, what do you got for us? Well, I'm a little bit consumed with October baseball at the moment, so I haven't been following as much news as I probably um, should be. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually uh, dovetail on to what Liz said because I'm not a very big believer that the off-term elections give us any insight into the midterms. But sh- I, I think in this case she's 100% right um, because uh, turnout I think is really that's what I'm looking I'm looking at turnout, especially with Democratic constituencies, and I want to explain why. Um, in 2016, we saw kind of a depressed Republican and Democratic turnout, um, although we did see an overperformance of Donald Trump with rural white, especially non-college educated voters. That was why he did better in 2016 in the polls than most of the polling was showing. In 2018, he was not on the ballot in the midterms, and Republican uh, turnout dropped precipitously, and the Democrats sweep into power by a pretty con- comfortable margin. In 2020, Donald Trump overperforms again from the polling that we were seeing. Um, and so the question now becomes, what's going to happen uh, with Democratic turnout? Incidentally, we come off, uh, off of this from the heels of a recall race here in California where it looks like turnout in the special election recall will surpass what it was in the midterms in 2018 once the votes are counted. This is a long way of saying these are there, there's something happening here on the trend line with Democratic constituencies specifically. Since 2018, Democrats have been showing up in extraordinarily large numbers. And I'm looking to see whether this is a, a Trump trend is it this negative partisanship that is driving Democrats to the polls? Will this be sustained? And it's going to, we're going to find out from Virginia very clearly, because as Liz points out, McAuliffe is sitting on this kind of marginal two-point lead. But if Democrats turn out and overperform the projected model, which seems to be the recent trend, you could see a McAuliffe win by a four to six point margin, maybe even a seven or eight if it gets significant enough. And I'm saying that only because most of the public polls in California had Gavin Newsom winning by about six, eight points. He ended up winning by 30 points. Okay. So there was nobody was getting the turnout model right. And if Democrats do show up, we could see um, a, a pretty big big margin on on um, on election night. Now it could also happen in reverse. We could see Yunkin, you know, significantly overperform. If you do see this very strong anti-Biden, anti-Democratic party sentiment driving and motivating people with what we call the enthusiasm gap, is which voters are most likely to show up. So um, a little bit the same story, watching the same story as, as Liz is too. I think a lot of us as politicos are watching it. I'm probably a little bit too nerdy and watching some very specific, you know, geeky stuff about it. But that trend line is what I'm looking at because if Democrats do show up, and if 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 uh, McAuliffe does win and outperforms what the polling averages say, I think that's going to be a strong sign of resiliency in the Democratic base that could portend a, a generational shift in the way we view low propensity Democratic voters from showing up. So. 100%. We've all got we've all got 
our eyes on very similar adjacent stories because the one the thing I was going to mention is this reporting by Ezra Klein from last week uh, talking about David Shore, the um, the data scientist, analyst, pollster, uh, who is telling Democrats what they don't want to hear. Um, and I just want to quote from this uh, this piece. Here's the truly frightening thought for frustrated Democrats. This might be the high water mark of power they'll have for the next decade. And he writes, Democrats are on the precipice of an era without any hope of a governing majority. The coming year, while they still control the House, Senate, and the White House, is their last best chance to alter course, to pass a package of democracy reforms that makes voting fairer and easier, to offer statehood to Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., to overhaul how the party talks and acts and thinks to win back the working class voters, white and non-white, who have left them behind the electoral eight ball. If they fail, they will not get another chance, not anytime soon. And then there was another piece uh, by uh, Thomas Edsel uh, just this week titled Democrats Can't Just Give the People What They Want. And then and he goes into uh, uh, a lot of the same a lot of the same reasoning and looks at the education gap um, between uh, uh, education gap in uh, white and non-white voters in the Democratic constituency. And uh, Mike, I know you and I are going to have a follow-up conversation, uh, perhaps with a couple of other folks about this um, in the coming weeks, uh, probably right after the Virginia um, election so that we have more data to talk about. But um, yeah, I just want to echo both of those, both of those look ahead stories. This is, we're entering into a, um, a, a make or break period, political period for, uh, for not just Democrats, but for democracy. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, before we go to the after party, AKA politicology plus, where <laughs> can people find you on the internet, Liz? Yeah. I'm on Twitter at underscore Liz Gilbert and Mike. I'm on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.